Good morning, Linworth. We are so grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning from wherever you are, your living room, your kitchen, anywhere that you are here this morning to worship and to honor the presence of God. We're so excited to be with you this morning. Why don't you stand and sing with us?
need you. But thank you that when we say we need you, you're not like humans. You don't freak out. You're not worried. You long to come meet our needs in every way that we need and in everything that we feel lost or broken or empty, you have the solution. You have the solution to everything we need. So Father, we're asking this morning that you would meet us, that you would fill us. And Father, I ask this morning that you would allow us to fix our eyes on you, that we'd get lost in loving you, and that as we're distracted loving you, you would heal us and you would fill us.
Still you know my heart The art
morning. Go ahead and take a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I'm back. No, you don't need to clap. I just... Oh, kids, you can go to your class. We love you, but you got to leave. No, just kidding. You can stay if you want. You know, I was thinking about this morning. Um, it's always a good Sunday when Ohio State wins and Alabama loses and Penn State loses, right? Sorry, Pastor Chris. Just kidding. All right. Well, again, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. I want to say especially good morning to those of you who are visiting with us. Um, if this is your first time here, again, just want to give you a warm welcome and say thank you for uh, joining us here this morning. And if you could, go ahead and reach into the, pew, uh, the chair. We don't have pews anymore. The chair in front of you and grab what we call a connect card. And uh, just begin to fill it out with some basic information. And then when the service is over, if you would take that to our welcome desk out in the lobby, uh, we would love to meet you. Uh, we have a gift bag we'd like to give you that's got some more information about the church, uh, as well as it's got a coffee mug and then a CD from our worship team. And so, again, that's just our gift to you as a way to say thank you. Uh, and then for everyone, again, that Connect card, that's where you can sign up for things uh, as we get going through the announcements here in a moment. Uh, as well, you can write any prayer requests that you have. And the pastors and the staff pray through those each week, and we do take that serious. And so please, if anything's going on that you would like uh, prayer for, you can write that on that Connect card. And as always, we always have prayer after the service as well. Well, we do have a few announcements this morning. Uh, the first is, I believe last week we told you about, uh, in two weeks from today, we're going to have our annual vision night, and we've also added this element of a harvest party. Uh, it'll be from five to eight. We uh, are anticipating the vision night piece, which, again, this is where we go over, uh, we look at what we've done this last year, and then we cast vision for what we're going to do in the upcoming year. We go over our financials for the year. Um, and, and so that's what the vision night piece is. We anticipate that going from about 5 to 6.30, and then the party, uh, harvest party will be from about 6.30 to 8. And with that, we have a chili cook-off, and uh, I've seen some of you have signed up, but if you would like to participate in that, there's a sign-up sheet uh, right there by the doors, and you can do that on your way out. Uh, next... Um, you know, we've had this uh, ESL ministry for quite a few years. We used to do it over at Whispering Oaks uh, that was geared more uh, towards uh, the folks there. But uh, in the last year or so, it's transitioned to being here at the church and primarily working with uh, some families from Venezuela. And this fall, we have nine new students. And so uh, Kathy Jimenez, who leads that ministry, is looking for some more volunteers. And again, you don't need to know Spanish. You don't need to have any uh, sort of experience in teaching ESL specifically. Uh, really, it's just having a conversation. It's being a conversation partner. There's a workbook that they use. And so it's all very easy. And so if you would like to uh, be a part of that, it's on Saturdays from 1 to 2.30 here at the church. Um, you can just write ESL on that Connect card. Uh, or if you look at the Bible app, there's an email for Kathy. You can contact her directly. Um, next... Uh, I'm so proud. Someone from my life group has uh, started, uh, had this idea of partnering with CRIS, uh, which is Community Refugee and Immigration Services, um, to create refugee welcome kits. And so uh, there's more information about that in that Bible app. But again, the basic idea is just providing some basic household items for uh, the, 
we, we anticipate the newest number I saw is at least a couple hundred new refugees specifically from Afghanistan coming here to Columbus. And so there's a need there. Um, you can just write refugee kit on that welcome card and we'll make sure uh, Kristen Tanis gets in touch with you about how you can participate in that. And then lastly here, uh, believe it or not, this month we have another celebration service. Uh, it's weird sometimes how those five Sundays fall throughout the year, but uh, it is October this time. And so what that means is that if you have had a baby that you would like to have dedicated, uh, I believe there's still some open slots for that. As well, we also do our baptisms. And so if you have not yet taken that step of faith, of, of, of showing, again, the world, again, baptism doesn't save you, but it, it, it's, it's you declaring to the world and to the church that you belong to Jesus. And so we would challenge you and encourage you to take that step. And if you would like more information about that, you can just write baptism uh, or baby dedication on the card and we'll be in touch with you. All right, I think that's it for announcements. I'm gonna invite Pastor Chris up to keep us going here in the Revelation series. Welcome back, Nick. Glad to have you back. So this week's talk deals with identity. Who am I? What is my purpose? And talking about identity, I got a kick out of this meme this past week. This is uh, decaf coffee sitting on the proverbial couch, talking to a psychiatrist, pouring out his heart, wondering about his purpose in life. Sometimes, Doc, I feel like I really don't have much of a purpose. Will you stand as I read today's passage? And if you have the Bible there in front of you, it's page 1029. I'm going to start at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And then we'll pray after we read God's Word together. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, um, uh, Thank you for the music and those that led us this morning into your very presence. Thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that your presence is here this morning with us, longing to uh, 
teach and to inspire and to give us the gifts and the resources we need to love you and to love one another. Father, bring maturity in our lives, evidenced by our love for you and our love for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. It's interesting that this city is called Philadelphia, who has little power. Modern-day Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, which I grew up near, has always had, ironically, a little brother mentality relative to New York, an inferiority complex. Its baseball franchise, the Phillies, who I cheered for has, when I grew up, has been regarded in the past as being one of the worst teams in baseball all of baseball, the first team to reach 10,000 losses. It's been referred to as a city of losers. Now the Bible is full of ironies, meaning things aren't always as they appear. There are surprises, things we don't expect that catch us off guard. Here is the church of Philadelphia stuck in between the church of Sardis and Laodicea. The church in Sardis was a church with great reputation, but spiritually on life support. The church in Laodicea was wealthy and had all the resources it needed, but its wealth had created an illusion of security. The church of Philadelphia, right in the middle of these two, is described as having but little power or little strength. Yet, to this church, no rebuke is given. Very interesting. Only given commendation and praise. They did not hear those words, but I hold this against you. And on top of the praise, they received the most prolonged list of promises and assurances. Promises that spoke to their cultural moment. Promises vivid to the imagination. Promises that were overwhelmingly powerful to shape one's identity and future. Now, what can it mean a church of little power? Well, it can't refer to their spiritual maturity. This church was praised for not denying his name and keeping his word and for their patient endurance. The implication is there was a tremendous temptation to quit. This is a courageous church. Little power particularly set over and against the church in Sardis and Laodicea, seems to suggest the relative size, influence, and resources of this church. It appears an acknowledgement from Jesus that they felt small, insignificant, and weak. Now, their position of no compromise may have meant that church members experienced economic loss, that they may have been beset with physical poverty. Now, we don't know, again, exactly what's going on in the mind of these believers, but the text does suggest that they had grown weary in their fight. For Jesus goes to unprecedented lengths to affirm and to encourage it. Do you remember our very first study in this series, The Church of Ephesus? It was the first church we went through. We entitled that message, when a church thinks it has everything but has nothing. 
For Philadelphia, we can turn that around. When a church thinks it as nothing, but as everything. Now there are six promises in this few verses. Promises that speak to us who feel disabled or paralyzed by troubling thoughts or conflicting emotions about who we are. Perhaps you can relate to these believers. Perhaps you too feel weak and small and insignificant. I'll just tell you for myself, if I may be honest and disclose a bit about myself this morning, this has been one of, if not the biggest challenge of my life, how I view myself. I've thought a lot about this, and I admit, probably way too much. But as I get older, you do realize the events and the people that impact you. For example, when I was young, I grew up in what was called a peace church, meaning that church teaching was actively against its members participating in the military. My church applied Jesus' teaching of non-resistance and loving your enemies to military engagement and defined it as morally wrong. Now, I'm not going to comment on that this morning, but it just sets the stage for this story. During World War II, members of my family, uncles, did not serve in the military, but were conscientious objectors. Now, as you might guess, in the 1940s, in the high pressure cooker of war culture, this was an incredibly unpopular stance. COs were intimidated, mocked, belittled, some beaten, and if I recall correctly, one young man was even killed. Now, when I grew up in the 60s, in my little town, this sense of rejection still hung in the air, even though the war had been over for two decades. Now, what I experienced directly was only a small degree of what my uncles and others would have experienced. And yet, it was not the words of others that impacted me, affected me. It was what was unspoken. It was what was in our family system. It was this sense of marginalization that was in the very genes of my family. We were outsiders. In our community, we were outsiders looking in. And there were moments in my growing up years where I felt that marginalization. We did not belong. So combining that sense of marginalization with my uh, already inherent, uh, overly sensitive uh, mental makeup, this sort of thing, this narrative of marginalization was pretty deep in my bones. And as I reflected on it, it has confronted me throughout my very life. It confronted me in high school in my goal. I had a goal of being the most popular person in my high school. That was my goal, to reach the inner circle. It affected me as we, my wife and I got out into our neighborhood community and into our sports community and realizing there are circles, right? There are circles in these communities. There are people who belong who are in, and there are people that are not. I also realize it in my church community, and again, realize, I recognize that this is my fallen, part of this is my own fallen 
nature, my own fallen measure of things. But in my church community, I perceived inner circles, inner rings, some who belong, some who don't. And in my self-esteem, in my own self-perception, I was always, no matter what, on the outside looking in. I did not belong. I did not have enough to qualify. I'm always on the outside. Now, when you're on the outside looking in, you can respond in two ways. You can become despondent and falsely humble. You can add up on an emotional calculator everything wrong with you and why you deserve to be on the outside. Done that. Or you can do everything in your own strength to break into the inner ring, posing as someone that you aren't really. I've also done that. Both of these responses come from the same root. They are human pride and ultimately self-destructive. And God has had me on a journey to do exactly that, to, to create in me a totally new way of seeing, one free from the circles of power. Now, some circles of power are real, aren't they, right? Some circles of power we create in our own minds. But God has had me on a journey, a journey of freedom that begins with a new definition of my identity. Perhaps this morning, some of you also struggle with troubling thoughts and conflicting emotions about yourself. And if that's you, buckle up for the ride. And let's see where God takes us this morning. What I want to do is roll through these promises one by one, and along the way, we're going to try to answer, I'm sure as we read this passage, it's like, whoa, what does that mean? We'll try to answer some of these hard questions, but we'll come back to this identity issue. And it, yeah, so let's look at the first one. And it's going to be really, again, really helpful if you have a Bible or a device in front of you as we're going to roll through all of these verses. So here's the first couple of verses, seven and eight. Jesus says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now this scripture has often been applied to God creating evangelistic opportunities or how God uses circumstances to guide us. And while those things are true and supported elsewhere, I don't think that is the meaning here. Remember how important the Old Testament is in interpreting Revelation. So in this case, it appears quite conclusively, Jesus is referring to a remote passage from Isaiah chapter 22, written some 700 years earlier. Go ahead and look at that if you would. It's page 584. And as you're looking at Isaiah 22, the context here is about an individual, probably you've never heard of him, named Eliakim. He is serving under King Hezekiah in ancient Judah, one of the good kings. And Eliakim was being promoted to a very high place in the king's administration, something of a uh, chief of staff, so to speak. And in his role, he is given the authority as a gatekeeper, determining 
who can and can't enter into the presence of the king. Now, all of you have likely dealt with a gatekeeper at some point in your life, right? All of you have likely dealt with that person who, when you're trying to get to the decision maker, and there's several layers deep in the organization, you can't get by the power that that gatekeeper wields, and you're frustrated by it. You know that kind of power. Well, Eliakim now serves that role. And again, now look at this passage, Isaiah 22, verse 22. God says, I will place on his, Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim, again, do you notice the resemblance there in the Revelation passage? Almost word for word. Eliakim is the king's appointment setter. He has the authority to open or shut the door into the presence of the king. Now, you might be baffled a little bit by this key that he has to carry around on his shoulder. Like, normally, you wouldn't take a key like this, which I used to open the church this morning. You wouldn't, like, carry this on your shoulder, right? Well, it's not the same kind of key. Picture instead an ancient kingdom protected by walls. The only way to enter into the city is through a massive gate, and your little household key will not have much luck with that. This key was a huge block of wood carried, configured. This key was configured in such a way that it could lift the lever that secured the gates. So what is Jesus talking about referring to this obscure little known scene? He is saying, I am the gatekeeper. I am the one who makes the way for you to enter into the presence of the king, not an earthly king, a heavenly king. Eliakim is a picture, rich small, of what Jesus would do. This prophecy, again, given 700 years earlier, pointed to what Jesus would become. He himself is a gatekeeper, and as to this gate, he has final authority. Those doors he opens, no one can shut, and the ones he shut, no one can open. You see, the church in Philadelphia if they experienced what other churches did in the Roman Empire, they had many doors shut to them. They were thrown out of the trade guild. They were thrown out of the Jewish synagogue. Many churches in the early part of the first century were actually attached to Jewish synagogues. But when the persecution intensified under Caesar, the Jewish religion was given an exemption. But the Christian church was not. And thus many Christians were removed from the protective cover of the synagogues. Doors were shut to them. But this promise speaks to their cultural moment. No trade association, no other religious leaders, no hostile individuals with power, no government, not even Satan himself can close the doors to eternal life. They were opened by Jesus. And what is open also cannot be closed 
So there is no sin you can commit that can close a door once opened. That's the first promise. Let's look at the second one. And this one's a little confusing. If you look down at the next verse, verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is some harsh language. And we saw it earlier in Thyatira. But here's what we have to keep in mind. Jesus was not at all anti-Semitic. He was Jewish. He loved the Jewish people. But in Revelation, we are seeing things not from the earthly perspective, but from heaven's throne. God's eyes, the one that penetrate to the soul, the ones that see beneath the surface. And these eyes recognize that these were Jews only in outward expression or in ethnicity, not in heart and soul. This is explained in more detail in places like Romans chapter 2. There the apostle Paul explains what is the essence of being Jewish, that it was not primarily an ethnic or national identity, but a love for God evidenced by a close relationship with him. You know, this verse likely points to an active persecution by the Jews towards the Christians. And given the history of their relationship, it could have cast serious doubt on their place in God's kingdom. Do we believers, do we really have a seat at God's table? Are we cursed? You see, the Romans recognized every other religion and they recognized Judaism. Imagine the impact of this, the marginalization on a young church, the doubts that would surface. Again, this is why Jesus commends them for holding fast his word. Okay, well, let's, again, let's stay in this a little bit longer. Why coming and bowing at their feet? Well, it's not to worship Christians. That's not the point. Can't be the point. But it is to say that in the future, they will acknowledge the rightness of your path. This weary, beaten down church will be vindicated. Again, going back to the Old Testament helps us unlock more meaning. Here's one passage. There are many others like it. But again, notice the resemblance. Isaiah 60, verse 14. It says, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, this passage captures in picture a glorious vision for the nation of Israel. It says in so many words, you will be vindicated. Now, here's the irony. This is Gentiles in Isaiah 60 coming to Jews. But after Jesus, in the age of the church, the tables have now been turned, and it is predicted that the Jews will acknowledge Jesus. Now, believers understand these verses a little differently based on how they view the end of the final days of history. 
But let's ask a more immediate question. Did this mean that some of the Jews living in that time who were opponents would come to see Jesus as their Savior? That's possible, though the language doesn't really lend itself towards conversion. This may more likely be referring to the end of history, described in other places as a time when every knee will come and bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either way, the encouragement for these believers is to keep in mind human rejection does not equal divine rejection. Your cause will be vindicated. And it is not wrong for you to long for vindication, to long for truth to win the day. In our own times, friends, in our own times, here, when you're saddened and grieved and angered by a culture that is uh, overturned, turned the values of the kingdom of God upside down, keep in mind, Jesus is going to be vindicated. That is the message here. The rightness of your cause will be made as evident as the noonday sun, the psalmist wrote. It'll light up the sky, visible, evident, undeniable. Let's go to verses 10 and 11 and look at this third promise. The third promise, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon, so hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, what does this mean? The promise here is I will keep you from the hour of trial, but what does that mean? Now, some Christians see in this verse an event happening towards the climax of history where Christians are taken away before a period of great suffering on the earth. Christians call this uh, a rapture. Now, uh, again, for our purposes this morning, we really can't uh, dive deep into that and to articulate the, uh, that position one way or another. But what I do want to say in this, in my view, in my view, what I can't agree with is that is concluding a rapture from this particular verse. Why is that? A couple of reasons. One is this. It presupposes, as least as I have heard it explained, that because of their little strength, they will be saved from the hour of trial. Now, there are several problems with that. One, as we have already seen, their little strength is not a spiritual weakness. And two, the idea that a Christian is assured of special protection from trials or persecution is simply not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Sam Storms commented, we have seen again and again in these seven letters that suffering for Christ and the sake of the gospel is something all believers must embrace. Why would God exclude these believers? I think what this does mean is that I will keep you strong and I will sustain you and your faith in an hour of unique testing. You know, this wording, uh, keep you from, is the same wording in the Greek in John 17, 15. 
And in John 17, 15, this is what Jesus prayed. It says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, same word, from the evil one. This is not taking them out of the world, but rather it is protecting and sustaining them in it. So, is this verse looking at a future event? In the same way verse 9 may be pointing to some future event at the end of history? Well, again, it, it may be, but for myself, I prefer to see it as an event in their lifetime. And there were such events in the Roman world that one could argue might qualify under the way that he has said it. If that's not the case, what relevance would it have to the believers in Philadelphia? Two more things here yet about this verse. It says to hold on to your crown here. Now the crown here, I don't think, is some uh, other reward than simply salvation. The crown is salvation. And what he's saying then is, hold on to what you have. The gospel. Jesus is the Christ. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. Now, if I'm not shaking you up already, let me shake you up with this, all right? And again, it's, obviously there's, there's lots of different opinions on these things. But finally, what does Jesus mean when he says, I will come soon? We typically apply this language. Let me just challenge you with a different way to think about this. We typically apply this language exclusively to the return of Jesus at his second coming at the end of history. It could mean that, though it certainly does strain the meaning of the word soon. I'm not sure it must mean that. We learned last week in the church of Sardis that Jesus said, I am coming like a thief in the night, yet he was coming in judgment, something that they may have experienced in their lifetime. It is possible that this promise, I will come soon, is a coming of assurance, of comfort, and of special presence during the hour of trial that this church is going to face. I would suggest that at least as a possible reading of this passage. Okay, so those are one, two, three promises. Let's move now to fourth, fifth, and sixth. And you think, it's getting late. He's, he's condensing his message. No, it's just the way it comes to us. A threefold promise speaking to their identity. Now, we have seen how relevant these promises are. Now we'll see how vivid and how overwhelmingly powerful they are for their identity and for their future. Let's read it again here, 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why do I say this is about identity? Look at how many times the word name is used. You know, we used to name our kids after family members, right? Some of you probably still do. But according to Business Insider, 
parents are now relying on available Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram handles to name their kids. This is no lie. I, this is no lie. Many parents want their kids to have a social media presence before they're born. For example, the highest earning YouTube star in the world is an elementary school kid who makes millions reviewing toys. Ryan, the seven-year-old host of Ryan's Toy Review, jumped from number, this is according to Forbes, I believe, jumped from number eight to number one on the Forbes annual list of YouTube stars. It's crazy. But back to our passage. <laughs> Look at how many times the word name is used. You know, in the computer age, we emphasize what we want to say with a bold font or an underline or putting everything in caps. Be careful with that. But before that, the biblical writers used repetition to emphasize a truth they wanted the listener to take home with them. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the new city and my own new name. Names in the Bible are very connected to identity. Answering the question, who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? Naming in the Bible might capture a striking characteristic or identify my family heritage and tribe, or point to a future that is envisioned for me. The one who does the naming has authority and ownership. The writing on a of a name on a person by God, when God writes his name on a person, like a branding, so to speak, or like a tattoo, God is saying, this is my son. This is my daughter. I own them. They belong to me. And here's the cool thing. When God does the naming, he has the power to form identity in you and to help it be realized in you. Again, let's one more time go back to the prophet Isaiah to see the continuity in these passages. Isaiah 56, verse 5. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. Isaiah 56, 5. Isaiah 62, 2. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. God is declaring from Isaiah, and those promises were at least partially fulfilled for the church. So God is declaring in emphatic terms to the believers in Philadelphia that you belong to me. You are close to me. You are a pillar in my temple. Now, pillars convey a lot of things, like stability, very useful things. But Sam Storms, in his uh, notes about this uh, commented on an exchange he had with a Middle Eastern individual who said that in those days, many pillars included beautiful artwork and carving. 
Psalm 144, 12, we get a clue here. It says in a ritual, bless, a ritual blessing, it reads, may your sons in their youth be like full-grown plants, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. While a pillar may have functional utility, its function to hold the house up may be overshadowed or can be overshadowed by the very beauty which it evokes. You know, we in the church, myself included, we are often too guilty, often guilty, of only ascribing value to those who perform well, who lead this or that outreach, who teach the Bible or wow us with their ability to sing or to evangelize or to counsel. But in his words to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus assures us that our place in God's presence is not based only on our usefulness. He certainly does not need us to keep his temple standing. And so we have here six beautiful, powerful promises. They are relevant. They were relevant then. They are relevant today. They are vivid in the kind of imagination that they conjure up through their, its artistic rendering. And thirdly, they are overwhelmingly powerful to shape our identity, the way we view ourselves and our future. What are they again? Number one, God opens a door that no one can shut. Number two, your cause will be vindicated. Number three, I will keep you during the hour of trial. Number four, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Number five, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And number six, I will write on him my own new name. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? A few brief comments. Today, in our culture, we are awash with identity questions. Who am I? Is it based on gender? Is it based on ethnicity? Is it the color of my skin? Is it sexual preference? You might even argue that identity is the driving question of our age. And what pushes this question forward, what makes it compelling, is that it contains a half-truth. That being, I must operate out of my identity. I must be true to myself. I can't live someone else's life. I can't be a slave to others' expectations. But in the culture, what we are encouraged to do is to look inside to what we feel, to find that true self by digging deeper inside our deepest self, our truest self. And again, this is a half-truth, right? So we as Christians affirm, we affirm that to live an authentic life, we must live out of our identity. But we say that a search for identity does not begin with looking inside with what I feel, but it begins by looking up and out. Yet how many of us, if we're honest, in the way that we view ourselves, trust in our feelings? 
our old scripts, what others think of us, what we think others think of us. As we learned earlier, we are pillars in the temple of God. Yet even that metaphor isn't fixed because in other places God says, your body, our bodies, are a temple of the living God. Over and over again, God seeks to shape our identity so we know who we are. We know where we have come from, and we know what our purpose is, and we know what our ultimate destiny is. But so often, we don't trust in God's Word. We trust in our feelings. Or we allow the criticism of others to shake our confidence. This is the message that I think Jesus was trying to get to the believers in Philadelphia. You're pillars. My name is written on you. You belong to me. And I have opened doors that no regime or no scheme of man or diabolical plan of Satan can ever shut. I said last week that Revelation reveals this great cosmic struggle that we're in. And Satan is warring against Jesus' church. Revelation 12, 11 gives his primary strategy, saying Satan is the great accuser. That is his primary strategy, to sideline you. If he can't stop you from becoming a Christian, he will seek to stop you from having a confident, growing relationship with Jesus and an assured belief that you belong to him. Again, Sam Storm says this, he says, if the enemy can persuade you that you are a spiritual imposter, an interloper, an unwanted, unqualified intruder into the kingdom of God, his victory is virtually assured. And he goes on and says this, on the other hand, if I'm able to rest securely in who I am in Christ, an identity forged by forgiveness, not failure, by his goodness rather than mine. I am enveloped and enclosed in a veritable fortress of strength and protective love. No assault will prevail. No accusation will stand. No insinuation, however subtle, will undermine my confidence or sow seeds of suspicion in my soul. I am who he says I am by virtue of what he has done and will do. This is our victory, giving us the power, not in eternity, just in eternity, but giving us the power today to reign with Christ. This, the message of Romans chapter 5. Today we're being, experiencing salvation, and it is giving us the power to love God and respond to his word today from a free and full heart, no longer motivated by the need to get into the inner circle, no longer motivated by guilt, no longer driven by shame. We have the power to love from a free heart and a full heart. You know, this kind of love for me, what it does, here's what it does. It decimates the circles of power that I had created, or it helps me not to care about the circles of power that are real. The ones that are built with a bankrupt system of values from our culture. It frees me from worrying about it. And it frees me from creating the circles of power that aren't even there. 
You know, I and myself, all of us, we might still be marginalized by the prevailing culture, but I no longer look to them for my security, my identity. I am free from equating family disapproval or cultural disapproval or peer disapproval or spouse disapproval. I am free from equating that with God's disapproval. Where has insecurity changed you? I've shared a little bit, just a tad of my story this morning. Certainly, I am still on the way. But where has insecurity chained you? Where is it chaining you? What conflicting emotions need healed by Jesus? Where do you need set free? Nick and our worship team, you can come on up if you would. Because I want to encourage you, even now, as we move into responding to God's Word, as we respond to God's Word, which leads us to pray, which leads us in worship, even now I want to encourage you to let the Holy Spirit come to you even now in this moment. Let His presence come and empower you to believe who you are. Father, as we move into an opportunity to respond to your words, we thank you that you are a God who is, you are a God who speaks, you are a God who makes promises, and you are a God who keeps promises. Help us rely on what you've said about us to live through Christ. this time to interact with the Father in whatever way is most comfortable for you. And I know he's, he's ministering to some of you online. The Spirit of God's ministering to you right now. And I just want you to just follow him. Follow his voice. Follow his heart. Where is he leading you? Go after him. We're giving you the space to do that right now. Go find him you'll be surprised that he's right behind you, he's right in front of you, he's right next to you. So as we sing this song, I just want you to have the freedom. Stand, sit, kneel, whatever you need. This is your time with him.
crown you. We, we glorify your name with our hearts and with our lives. We choose not our feelings. We choose not our feelings. We choose the truth that your name is above every name. And you are a father who loves your children. You have blessed us. You have blessed us with life.
we're going to go after it a little bit with this next song. But I'm singing this over many of you. I'm singing this over you online. I'm singing it for myself. We are more than conquerors in Christ.
we are conquerors. stronger than our hearts. Isn't that great news? It truly is. All right. Okay. Praise the Lord. Thanks, thanks everybody. Thank you so much. He is stronger than our hearts. That's the message out of 1 John, and it's great news. Hey, before we break up here, it's been a great morning, and um, invite you back for our Wednesday evening, another presentation by Eric Chabot. We had a great time last Wednesday, both here as well as online. Again, it'll be live streamed, and uh, Eric's going to talk about the authority of Christ in terms of being able to save us. Uh, how can it be that Jesus is the only way to salvation? A question that many in our culture struggle with. Uh, Eric's going to help us understand that important question. You know, as an application today, you might ask, wow, I felt so inspired this morning. What do I really do? Here's one little tip for you. When you read your Bible this week, and we encourage you to read it every day, when you read your Bible, remember, you're not only reading to find out what to do, but you are also reading to determine and find out who you are. Lastly, I want to encourage you, where is Dale Schuller's over here? Dale's over here. Dale is heading to Italy for a two- or three-week mission trip. He's leaving Friday. And so if you're led, please, as we close, move over to uh, that area by our baptismal. And uh, we're going to be praying for Dale for that trip. But before we close, let's now have our final blessing and final benediction. May the Spirit of Jesus, who breaks shame and guilt... May the Spirit of Jesus, who sings over us, may the Spirit of Jesus, who declares us sons and daughters, may He be with you, and not only with you, but may He, the hope of glory, be in you. Amen. Amen. Let's go and serve. <laughs>